Blog Talk Radio. Namaste. You are now in the Funk Soul Cafe, a cool, hot, soulful radio show for artists, writers, and so much more. Hosted by yours truly, Robert Batista. So sit back, grab a nice, warm, and soulful cup of java or chai, and listen and enjoy. I write books that mean something. I want my books to encourage you and entertain you. Becoming a writer has been challenging, fraught with lessons and slow as molasses, but it has also been rewarding, magical, and enlightening. Every day, I am a little more sure that writing is my thing. These are the insightful words of today's esteemed guest, Elizabeth Forky. Namaste, Elizabeth Forky, and welcome to the Funk Soul Cafe. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. Elizabeth, let's first start off by taking your Java order. We have a wonderful variety of fine espressos cappuccinos and lattes, and we also have herbal teas for those tea lovers. So what's your fancy, Elizabeth? Well, are you paying, Robert? It's on the house. All right. If it's on the house, I'll take a venti, skinny, white mocha with half the pumps, and I'd like that stirred, please. Whoa, reminds me of the James Bond, shaken, not stirred. Okay, definitely. (laughs) Let me go ahead and get that for you. So, all right. Okay, and it is stirred, and here you are, Elizabeth. Enjoy it. Thank you. You're welcome. So, uh, yes, yes, I definitely wanted to make sure. I don't want you talking about me after after the show. (laughs) I gave you a bad... (laughs) <laughs> so, Elizabeth, um, welcome to the show, as I said. And being a Christian author, your faith is evident and ever-present in how you go about writing and composing your books. Can you define in your words what being a Christian author is? And are there different degrees or aspects from writing from the Christian point of view? Definitely. Uh, Actually, that's why I first tried my hand at writing. Um, 
these days most Christian fiction is either Amish or Little House on the Prairie. You're going to find that as the largest amount in Christian bookstores. And I think it's because Christian publishing companies want clean, wholesome, edifying fiction. And if you write about, uh, if you make a character realistic in today's times, you're going to have things that Christian publishing companies don't want in their books. They, they want things to stay as pure and perfect and wholesome as possible. So the only way to write realistically is to write Amish and write hundreds of years ago. And uh, I really feel that Christian fiction needs a revamp and that most teenagers today especially just can't relate with an Amish character or someone from hundreds of years ago. So I started writing uh, with that purpose in mind. I wanted to write something that today's teenager could relate to, um, religious or not religious. I wanted uh, a kid who had never read Christian fiction to pick this book up and find it intriguing and captivating and stay with the story even after they found out it had a message of faith. Mm, Very interesting. So let's talk about your book series. What are the stories based on and how did these seeds germinate in your head to lead you to write the first one, Infectious? Well, Infectious is based on um, one of the uh, chapters of the book of Revelation. It's about the end times. It's based on the Christian perspective of the last seven years on earth that uh, most Christians call the tribulation. So it's a post-apocalyptic novel. It's uh, after the rapture, half of, um, half of the world has disappeared or died in world wars. And it's the remaining people on earth in the last year uh, before the end of earth. I am intrigued by the covers or the titles of your book, uh, how you show the letter T uh, and its symbolism. Was that your idea? And where did it come from? The first book, Infectious, my husband thought of that title. I am really terrible at, at thinking of titles. I'm terrible at promotion. I feel really capable of writing a fantastic story. And when it comes time to tell someone why that story is fantastic, my tongue seizes up and I don't know how to talk about it. And it's even worse when it comes to thinking of a title. My first couple ideas for titles were abysmal. And my husband came up with Infectious. Uh, I fell in love with it and decided to make the T in the middle um, look like a glowing cross. And then uh, when the next two novels came, it was much easier to find the right word. And and all three of them have a T in it with the cross glowing instead of a T. Yes, that's a really, really nice touch, I noticed. Um, Infectious is billed as a Christian post-apocalyptic zombie love story. And it's (laughs) geared to the YA audience. Uh, Elizabeth, Did you feel any added pressure writing and focusing your stories for young adults and teens? Is there more of a moral responsibility to write for the youth than those who are in adulthood? Uh, Well, once again, I did feel a lot of that 
uh, moral calling to write to teens and young adults. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the new show on Netflix that all of the teens are watching right now. It's called 13 Reasons Why. Have you heard of that? I've heard a lot about it, uh, and a lot of it has been negative, actually. Yeah, I actually feel pretty negative about it as well. But the point is that our teens today are looking for real life. They aren't content with fantasy stories that don't mean something to them. And 13 Reasons Why is about a lot of the drama um, that some teens are facing every day. So I wanted my book to be real teenage thoughts, real teenage issues, uh, with that underlying faith message behind. But uh, I do feel like teens are grasping for books that they understand that are uh, what they're going through right now. Well, I agree with you 100%. Uh, my books are geared towards teen. I'm a YA author. And, you know, when I go into the schools and talk to the kids who've read my book, I mean, that's what they compliment me on, that uh, my books are realistic and what they go through the day. They don't want to read War and Peace and, and, Tale, and right. Two, Tale of Two Cities, you know, right. and even Animal Farm. You know, they, they want to read something that is for them and about them. And that's why my new story, Imagination High, is exactly what you're saying, you know, the day-to-day trials mm-hmm. and tribulations of, of young adults. So, um you know, many authors, Elizabeth, in the beginning, look to hone their craft by taking advanced courses in creative writing and or joining various writers' workshops. Did you? I had zero experience in writing. I actually, mm-hmm. I wrote a poem as a 13-year-old. I wrote a poem that was published in um, the um, Oh, what is it called? The uh, March for Life, the uh, Pro-Life magazine. And I was really proud of that when I was 13. But that's the only thing I had ever written other than a paper for school when I decided to sit down and write a novel. So I didn't know what I was doing at all when I first got started. So what gave you the confidence to actually make that leap? God. (laughs) Insanity, (laughs) a mixture of the two. (laughs) Yeah, that'll work. Um, You know, (laughs) did you you do any type, Elizabeth, did you do any type of extensive research for your series? Um, And if so, what did that entail? Well, um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, I love to read. I, in particular, love the Harry Potter books. I love the Twilight books. Uh, I loved the Left Behind books. And uh, at that time, my husband and I had just started watching The Walking Dead. Uh, It was the first or second season of The Walking Dead when I started writing the first book. So it was a lot of those ideas, the way that Stephanie Meyer uh, wrote Bella and, Bella and Edward, uh, the kind of love, the kind of connection that they had mixed with some of the fear from The Walking Dead, mixed with some of the end times issues from Left Behind. A lot of different books and TV shows culminated in my head. But um, aside from that, I did a lot of 
Bible research. I read a commentary on the book of Revelation. I spoke with my pastor on several occasions. I wanted to make sure, because the book of Revelation is a prophetic book, and people have interpreted it many different ways. There are some people who believe that um, Christians will stay here on earth throughout the tribulation. Some people think that the rapture will happen before the tribulation. There are so many different uh, opinions and ways to interpret that. I wanted to be certain of how, uh, of what I believed and how I thought that those end times were going to look. And I, in particular, I based my book on one chapter in the book of Revelation that was called the bowl judgments. And the first bowl judgment is that God pours out out of a bowl this terrible disease on everyone left on earth. And that's where my book opens up. My, my zombies aren't real zombies. They are just people suffering from this terrible curse in the last year on earth. And the only people who don't have this curse are the people who have decided to follow God uh, after the rapture. So Ivy and her small group uh, living behind a big fence, in small town Tekoa, um, they're immune from this curse and pretty much the rest of the world is rotting away in this disease that looks a lot like leprosy. And when it's advanced, they, they look like zombies. So Ivy calls them zombies. They aren't zombies. She gets in trouble for it. Her aunt, who's her caretaker, her pastor at her church, they both lecture her about not talking that way about their neighbors. Uh, it's just a nickname that Ivy has for the really sick people living around her, and that's how the little zombie twist came in. Elizabeth, you have graciously agreed to read a part of one of your stories for us. Can you set up the piece before you read it? Sure. Uh, I'm reading from the third book called Eminent. I don't think that this this particular chapter gives away too much. My husband asked me why I wasn't going to read from the first book. And to be brutally honest, it's because I feel that my writing grew a lot with each book. So if I'm on a radio show, I'd like to read some of my best writing. I feel that I got better with each book. And I just, I, I like this chapter. I think it sets the scene for the, the time that Ivy's living in. Understood. That's great. So do you want me to go ahead and read? Ready when you are. All right. This is Chapter 20 in Imminent, and it's called The Dangling Dead. Between sleep and waking, I hear a sharp intake of breath, a wince of pain. Hazel moans next to me and rolls over, irritated at being disturbed. I prop myself up on my elbow, and every muscle in my body aches. Pregnant? Check. Walked all day for two days? Check. Slept on a cement floor? Check. Dehydrated? Check, check, check. I can't recall ever feeling this sore in every fiber of every cell of my misshapen body. Blinking and stretching, an excruciating stretch that feels like everything is dislocated. I find the source of the noise that woke me. Matt is sitting in a chair, and Jesse is standing over him, applying what smells like alcohol to bright red cuts on his bare chest. My heart leaps with worry and fear, and I gasp. Hazel grunts at me, angry that I'm waking her, and donkey kicks my sore leg. I want, 
oh, how I want to kick her back. But Matt's bleeding back demands my full attention. Horrified, I assess and absorb the situation. What happened? I cry out as I try to lift my cumbersome body out from between Trish and Hazel. Matt's silver zombie suit is unzipped and pulled down to his stomach. Along with the new red cuts and blooming purple bruises, several old scars traverse his side and wrap around his torso. My heart nearly stops when I notice the arrow protruding from his shoulder. Oh my gosh. I flop over Hazel, who is sitting up now. My panic-stricken voice has everyone up and staring. Ivy, come hold this, Jessie hisses, her silver hair and silver suit gleaming in the first light of day. I force my sore body to stand and hobble quickly to Matt's side. The arrow has gone straight through and is sticking out of the top of Matt's shoulder in the front. Clotted blood has gathered around the shaft. Every time Jesse touches it, Matt winces sharply and grits his teeth. What happened? I beg again. He got himself beat up. That's what happened, Jesse says with unveiled irritation, and I can't tell if she's irritated at him or me. When? How? I ask. Hold tight to the front. I have to break it off in the back. I gingerly wrap my fingers around the blood-soaked wooden shaft, and the sharp top of the metal arrow digs into the side of my hand. Matt's face crinkles in pain, and his eyes are pressed tightly shut. My limbs feel weak and trembly with the thought of his pain. Jesse tries to snap the arrow quickly, but it doesn't work. It just jerks the shaft down and makes Matt yelp in agony. I've never heard him make that noise. I let go of my end of the arrow and crumple against his bare, bleeding chest, distraught. Gingerly, he lifts one arm to hold me. That didn't work, Jessie says with no feeling in her voice. My head whips up and I glare at her and her ambivalence. The iceberg has refrozen. And right now, I have no patience for her. Thomas, I'm going to need your help. Thomas, who has been hovering behind her, steps forward, his face drained of color. Hold here. Tight now. Thomas trembles as Matt winces sharply again. Ivy, up. Hold your side, Jesse barks. I'm sorry, I whisper to Matt as I take hold of the arrow again. Now, use all your strength to hold it as still as possible, Jesse commands. And some part of me remembers that she has a medical background. And maybe this is how you have to be when you deal with a wounded person, especially someone you love. Maybe you have to shut everything else down. My eyes stream tears as I hold tight to the sticky shaft. Now, Jesse whispers, and I feel the arrow push hard against my hand. Matt screams, and it pulls my soul apart. Finally, the arrow breaks with a pop, and the pressure against my hand subsides. Move, Jessie pushes me out of the way with her elbow. With no warning, she pulls the shaft out of Matt's shoulder, and he cries out again. I find myself kneeling at his feet, my arms wrapped around his legs, holding on for dear life. Thomas plops down onto the dirty cement beside Matt's chair and puts his head between his knees. I hope he doesn't puke. That would be the only thing that could make this worse. Jessie drops the arrow on the floor beside me and hurries to douse Matt's wound with more alcohol. Ivy, hold this, she insists. I pull myself back up to my feet and press the gauze against the hole in Matt's back. The wound is high up, less than an inch down from the top of his shoulder. Even with no experience or medical know-how, I know the arrow didn't hit anything important. It isn't life-threatening. I'm not going to lose him. I feel my heart decelerate, and I stare down at his blood-stained back. His shoulders are broad and pale compared to his dark brown neck. 
His suit has given him a distinct tan line. His ribs stick out slightly on his thin sides. The scars will my fingers to lightly caress them, and I can't stop my hand from tracing his spine down to where the zombie suit is gathered at his waist. When he feels my hand, he puts his head back, and I gently rub his neck and slide my fingers through his hair. Jesse dabs again with the alcohol, and Matt draws in a sharp breath. Okay, okay, no more. I'm fine. <laughs> she sighs, condescending, as she rips the white medical tape with her teeth and press it, presses it against the gauze on his front. Move, she says wearily, shoving me out of the way again to dress the wound on his back. A few moments later, that wound is taped up too. Some of these cuts look like they could use a stitch, she says. No, no, I'm good, he insists, standing up. He fumbles to thread his arms back through the suit and catches me watching as he pulls up the zipper and tucks the scrap of map against his chest. What happened? I ask again quietly. This is the cost of the water you wouldn't drink, Jessie huffs. Jessie is mad at me? She blames me for this? This is my fault? He went back again because you wouldn't drink when you had the chance. You went to steal more? I ask incredulous. I'm instantly irritated with both of them. Matt did something wrong, not me. No wonder this happened. He stole water in some misguided attempt to care for me, and somehow his bloody shoulder is my fault. Unbelievable. And why am I even surprised? He was a thief before. Stealing is what he's always done. Matt avoids my eyes and my questions and ducks out through the open window. Struggling over the sill, I follow him. Jessie doesn't say anything else, and I don't even look at her as I swing my legs through the open window. The sun is barely up, and it's already hot. Matt is, stand Matt is standing a ways from the rundown house, staring out at the remains of a long-forgotten cul-de-sac. All the other homes have been vandalized and plundered, too. Spray-painted graffiti and burned-out walls are vestiges of hate and senseless destruction. It looks like all the garage doors have been blown open with explosives, and the few cars left on the street are rusted and smashed. The wind blows, and a tree in the front yard of a house four doors down catches my eye. From its lowest branch, two nooses hang, each swinging with the weight of a rigid corpse. A tricycle lays tipped over beneath them. All around us is sin-bought ruin and more death. Matt turns around and sees me. With a deep breath, he walks to me and wraps his arms around me. I let him block my view of the swaying skeletal bodies. Don't look, he mumbles against my ear. You'll have bad dreams. And that is most of Chapter 20 of Imminent, Book 3 in the Infectious Series. Bravo. I am definitely impressed. Definitely. Uh, I was locked in. Thank you for that. So <laughs> Thank you. let's. Yeah, let's talk about Elizabeth Forky, the person. Where did you All grow right. up, and what was your childhood like? I grew up in western Pennsylvania, in Newcastle, uh, Pennsylvania, pretty close to Pittsburgh. And I'm the oldest of four children, and my parents um, are still married. They're a wonderful example of sticking with marriage, which can be hard. And I met my husband when I was 16 and he was 17. We met on a blind date. We were set up by some friends from school. And we dated five years and got married uh, when I was 21 and he was 22. So I, we've been together. We've been married for 17 years now. And we've been together for 22 years. 
which feels like a long time. What, <laughs> what were some of the books and authors that inspired you in your youth? Hmm. Well, in my youth, when I was really little, I read the Mandy books, which are a really fun set of books for young girls. Also, Frank Peretti wrote a series of books for young teens, and they were about um, an archaeologist and his kids. I remember really loving those books when I was little. Uh, I read the Left Behind books when I was in college, so that was, was fairly young then. Uh, I think I really loved Little Women, too. But Oh, and The Chronicles of Narnia, definitely. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors ever. Yes, definitely. And those Left Behind books, I've, I've been hearing and heard so much about them. Um, awesome. Um, getting back to your Infectious series, how do the other two installments, Imminent, and Immaculate complement the original. Do you have to read them in succession, or can each book stand alone? Yeah, you do have to read them in succession, and that was one uh, lesson that I learned a little too late as a brand-new author. Uh, Infectious ends not abruptly, but it ends partway through the story. They're each an equal one-third part of this last year on Earth and Ivy's very exciting story. She's on the run uh, from this very big scientific organization that thinks that her blood uh, holds the cure to the rest of the world. So they're tracking her down, and she's running, and Infectious ends without the story being finished. It doesn't tie everything up like some books do. And I got a lot of negative reviews just because it ends in – the next book wasn't out yet, and I, I didn't know not to do that. I didn't know to tie it up better. It's not that it, it's not that it ends on a cliffhanger, but it just ends and the story is not over yet. So you need to read all three. Elizabeth, how an author publishes or gets published is such an important part of this show. How were your books published? Did you go mainstream, independent, or did you self-publish? And did you have any challenges in the publishing process? Well, um, when I wrote the first book, it took me about a year and a half, and no one had ever heard of me, so there was no pressure. I just wrote at my leisure and constantly begged my husband and teenage daughter to read and reread for me until they were sick <laughs> of it. Uh, and then when I felt done with the story, I bought some good writers' magazines and um, read a few articles and researched online and found out what a query letter was. I didn't know any of that, um, even throughout the process of writing. So like I said, I'm really terrible at promoting myself. I feel great at writing. I feel terrible at telling you what the story is about. I, I can write the story, but I can't pitch it to you. And I was equally terrible at query letters. So I wrote... I don't know, maybe four different query letters. And I queried probably, oh, maybe 15 or 20 different agents. And uh, because my story is not normal Christian fiction, because some of the characters 
occasionally say a swear word. And because Ivy faces real sexual temptation because she's a teenage girl in the last time, in the last days, um, agents were nervous about my story. It had so much faith in it. It has Bible um, principles. It has Bible verses. Ivy's is doing her devotions and reading the Bible in this book. And at the same time, the people that are living around her are cannibals who um, eat babies. I mean, there's so much light and so much dark in this book that it was really hard to find somebody who could get behind what I was trying to do with this. So I got a lot of rejections and I gave up uh, and self-published on Amazon. And then I wrote the second book and I self-published that as well. And the first and second book did really well. I got a a lot of great reviews. Um, The second book, I think, still only has, for a long time, the second book only had five-star reviews. I think I have a couple of four stars now. Um, But the first and second book did so well that I uh, was approached by a small publishing company, and they offered to traditionally publish uh, the first two books and the third book. So that's that felt like winning the lottery, just having somebody believe in me and being right. having a company willing to pay everything to publish all three felt fantastic. Let's talk about what I call the 800-pound gorilla in the room, marketing. So many authors spend so much time writing and publishing their book, as you spoke about earlier, but have no clue on how and what it entails to market it. How do you handle the publicizing and marketing of your books, Elizabeth? That's a great question. How do you handle yours? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not very good at marketing. Um, I, every part of this process has been a learning experience. I had never written. I had to learn to be an author. I had never edited. I had to learn to be an editor. I had never published. I learned how to be a publisher. I am still trying to figure out marketing. I'm not very good at saying to someone, you've got to read my book. It it feels awful. It feels boastful. Um, I have such a hard time with that. So I've done a few different ads, like um, not Book Baby, but um, what's the other one? I've done a couple big promotions. I've got a Facebook page and a Twitter page. I have a blog that has a page that talks about my books. Um, I've done one other radio show like yours, but I have not done a lot that other people do with marketing. I'm still a mom to two kids and I have a cake business and I'm really involved at church and man, is it hard to dedicate the right kind of time to marketing. And the other reason I am bad at marketing is that I have such an obsessive personality that when I do go into spurts of heavy marketing, I'm checking the numbers and checking the sales and I'm so involved and immersed in it that I have a really hard time um, being normal. I get, sad and down if the book doesn't do very much after I've put so much effort into it and I feel my mood swing with my marketing swing so sometimes I just have to step back and and take a break and and let other people uh, like my publisher and God (laughs) be in charge of marketing because I'm very bipolar with it. In closing I'd like to talk a little about your fantastic business as you said 
of making and producing extraordinary cakes. I've seen the pictures, and they are really awesome. How did you start this, and where has it taken you? Well, thank you. Uh, I started small the same way I've started with just about everything. I was self-taught. I took the Michaels courses, uh, the Wilton courses at Michaels, when I first, I booked my first wedding cake without ever having taken a class and then realized I was in trouble. So I went to Michael's and wow. took the, the Wilton courses and that's where I got started. And uh, Chloe was about two then and she just turned 16. So I've been doing this for 14 years and uh, I'm mostly self-taught. I just experiment and play around and I've learned how to make big 3d structures and uh, I've, I learned how to make intricate gum paste flowers and cakes that look like bulldogs and crocodiles, and I have a lot of fun with it. It's, it's a great outlet. So what's next for Elizabeth Forky? What other irons do you have in the fire coming up? A fourth book on the series, or are you going in another direction? I have about four other books that I've started, and uh, once again, in the spirit of transparency, I, I constantly fight the discouragement of how long it's taking to get the infectious series out there. But sometimes it just mentally beats me and I have a hard time picking up the next book. It's hard to work for, you know, three years on a series and, and see it go, you know, it just hasn't gone very far yet. It, it's not out there yet. Right. It's discouraging. So it's really hard. I want to write. I've got four other books I'm excited about, but making the time to prioritize them and write is, is a constant mental battle. So how do people get a hold of you, um, contact you, follow you, give out your websites or any contact information you'd like? Sure. Um, I have uh, an author Facebook page. It's author um, author E.B. Forky on Facebook. And um, I've also got a blog. Um, I'm sitting down here at my computer. Uh, and I have a Twitter page. I do a little bit with my Twitter page, but not a ton. Um, for I think my Facebook page is what I use the most to promote my book and to touch base with fans and I've actually made some really neat friends on the Facebook page Uh, a young girl in Florida who read my book and wrote to me ended up making me an incredible trailer she's a film student in college she was just 17 when we met and she used her youth group and um, got the rights to some neat old uh, abandoned homes and she wrote an original score uh, and, and wrote and made this beautiful trailer for infectious. So I've had some really neat fans that have just kind of knocked my socks off with their support. And uh, Angela and I are still friends. Now she goes to college up here in Georgia and she comes to stay with me every once in a while. So that's been a really neat thing. So my Facebook page is probably the best way to communicate with me. Hey, it doesn't get any better than that. This has been the Funk Soul Cafe with me, Robert Batista. One of the easiest ways to peer into my soul is to download and read my free micro story called My Baby Has No Name from Smashwords.com. My guest has been author, blogger, 
Cake Maker, and so much more, Elizabeth Forky. And you can check her out at eforky.wordpress.com. I will close with an ancient proverb. They thought they could bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being my guest on the Funk Soul Cafe. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful. Have a great evening. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye.